0: Hello and welcome to Meandering with Myrn, a potpourri podcast by me, veterinary ethologist Myrna Malani. Join me as I ponder any and all things animal and human, what we know and what we don't, where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. Like other forms of contagion, Semantic contagion related to companion animals may have positive or negative results. Think of it as comparable to going viral on social media. Someone says something about a particular topic that strikes a chord with someone else, who then catches that orientation and passes it on to others, who pass it on to others, etc., ad nauseum. And like any other virus, Semantic contagion related to companion animals may benefit some and harm others. Although the concept is relatively new as it relates to people, this form of communication isn't a new phenomenon. Nor is it strictly a human one. Members of multiple species use this mechanism to gain attention from others for multiple reasons. The behavior of animals during the breeding season comes to mind here. Whether they communicate with their fighting prowess or high energy, their dual message remains the same. A warning to competitors to back off and an invitation to animals of the opposite sex to come hither. Both males and females must strike a balance between communicating just enough pickiness to ensure a good parent for their offspring, but not so much that they drive off potential mates. In nature, no such thing as all positive exists. Animals who outcompete their competitors may get too battered in the process to successfully mate. And just because they're good competitors doesn't guarantee that they'll be good mates or parents in those species whereby parental care is necessary. Some wildlife biologists also observe novel forms of semantic contagion in animals captured and tagged or collared to facilitate data collection. They noticed how the presence of these devices could alter the wearer's status among others of the same species. In some cases, the device-wearing animals became a novelty, someone special, someone worth mating with. And that, in turn, increased the number of offspring that tagged or collared animals had. This awareness created a conflict for more thoughtful researchers. On the one hand, wild animals that were easier to capture made the researchers work easier. Additionally, those animals and their offspring would generate a larger population of capture facilitated animals if those animals made it. This would enable researchers to collect more data faster. But on the other hand, it seemed doubtful that the animals most easily captured represented the cream of the crop in this age of human-caused wild habitat destruction. The message of those who questioned the wisdom of the approach encouraged at least some researchers to opt for more hands-off methods. Gradually monitoring devices worn by animals were replaced by less behaviorally invasive technology. Semantic contagion in human-canine and feline relationships also has evolved, but over a much longer time. And undoubtedly the process also involved a lot of trial and error before anything like what we now consider a quality human-canine or feline bond became the norm. In the ancient past, Human-canine and feline relationships almost certainly were mutually rewarding and function-based. However, any interaction that benefited a specific human-animal pair or even a group of them might not be communicated to others. But if the mutually rewarding interactions were successfully repeated often and long enough, semantic contagion would occur, but how long it would survive would depend on other changes in the environment. Like semantic contagion in social media, the human-canine and feline relationship wasn't a done deal. It remains a dynamic connection capable of adapting to changes in the human and animal physical, behavioral, and emotional environment. If and how much it changes depends on its benefits and costs to members of each species. At different times in human canine and feline history Only socially privileged people could own dogs or cats in general or specific kinds of dogs or cats. During the Dark Ages, the entire feline domestic population was despised for multiple religious reasons. At that time, people hoping to gain points with the emerging Christian church tortured and killed cats in multiple bizarre and gruesome ways, including for displaying behaviors that won them the status of gods in ancient Egypt. However, the devastating human effects of the plague in the Dark Ages, carried by flea-infested rats, caused more intelligent people to reconsider this anti-feline stance. There's nothing quite like a mental image of death-carrying rodents overrunning the streets, homes, and public buildings, including the churches, to cause people to reframe predatory feline skills in a more favorable light. Another example of emotional contagion that received a makeover concerned the ownership of purebred dogs. It was only when the cost of this purely human status-preserving practice exceeded its benefits that a more democratic approach evolved. This time the lowly mongrel skills in vermin and predator control made these animals belonging to the lower classes as, if not more, valuable than those valued strictly for their pure breeding. These and other examples illustrate the evolution of the human domestic dog and cat relationship from a knowledge and function based one to one based increasingly on human emotions. Consider the results of a large 2012 survey designed to determine the reasons people consider getting a sheltered dog. What the researchers called variety emerged as a particularly potent human motivator. Unlike in that that not-that-distant past, when breeding, color, sex, or temperament were primary considerations, the majority of survey respondents perceived the dog's rescue status as the primary selling point. This led researchers to recommend that shelters reach out to other areas to increase the number of rescue animals in their facilities. This rescue-driven semantic contagion began in 2005 and has continued to gain influence since then, including in cats. Over time, shelter animals were rebranded as rescues and anyone involved in the process became a rescuer except for the real or imaginary people perceived as the cause of the animal's presence in the system in the first place. Far more often than not, they were branded villains. Logic suggests that, like previous human perceptions of the ideal human-canine or feline relationship in the past, the rescue orientation also eventually will pass and the resultant relationships with people decline. There always will be people who want or even need to rescue dogs or cats or other animals for one reason or another, and whether the animals want or need to be rescued. But the national and international movement of these animals with their associated populations of microorganisms to feed a human desire for novelty is not an all-positive phenomenon. It does have costs and these costs will continue to grow as the quality of these animals and the ability of rescuers to meet their needs declines. You've been listening to a podcast by veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. For more podcasts, commentaries and books about animal behavior and the human-animal bond, and links to behavior and bond sites, check out my website at www.mmalani.com. For more specific information, feel free to email me at mm at all rights related to the content of these podcasts are retained by Myrna Milani. The background music, Molly on the Shore by Percy Granger, is used with permission from Katova Arts, www.katova.com.